Alright, welcome back to the Like Minds Podcast and Open Journal for Creatives and Entrepreneurs. I'm Josh Allen, joined by Adam Kuklich, as always. Uh, we like sharing ideas. That's the whole point of this podcast. And boy, did we share a lot of ideas and talk about them with our friend Carlos. Yes, we did. And Carlos is a friend of mine. I met him at Purdue University, and he is actually a co-founder of Cyron, the business that we both started in 2019. And today, we had him on the podcast to really dive into some of his upbringing. He grew up in seven different countries, and due to growing up in seven different countries and constantly moving around, he had a lot of interesting perspectives and insights to share on the world and people and how people interact. So it was interesting getting those insights out of him. We also uh, went astray and even even talked a little bit about AI and robots and if they can be creative. So hope you get, hopefully you guys can enjoy this podcast and uh, get right into the nitty gritty with us. Yeah, absolutely. And then also tell us what you think after uh, some of our, tell us what you think about some of our wild ideas. We'd love to hear yours. Um, let's go ahead and get into it. All right, guys, welcome back to Like Minds Podcast. Today, we have a very interesting guest. Uh, we've been bringing guests on the show, and it's been something pretty interesting that we've been doing, and I think we're going to continue doing that. Today, we have my friend Carlos Pereira. He is another person that I met at Purdue University, but uh, I'm also founding, co-founding a company with him. He's uh, one of the co-founders of Cyron. And he has a very interesting upbringing. He's actually lived in seven different countries growing up. So uh, I think we can get in some really interesting conversations regarding that and the different ideologies that people from different countries hold. So Carlos, if you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, what living in seven different countries is like and what were those countries? Right. So uh, growing up, like my dad was an expat worker, which means like, he works for a business in France, but the business forces him to move around to like other places. So like he was a petroleum engineer. So because of that, we'd go to like places that have oil. And, you know, since my dad's moving, I have to move with him. So I've lived in seven different countries in like three continents. And uh, I guess just list the countries. I was born in Belgium. And my parents moved to Argentina, so I lived there for like five years. I don't really remember it that well, but afterwards I moved to the Netherlands and then that's basically when I start remembering more stuff. So uh, I was like seven in the Netherlands. And then from like, at the age of nine, I moved to England and I lived there for like four years. And then afterwards I moved to Brunei, which is a country in Asia next to Malaysia lived there for four years and then I moved to Singapore for high school education lived there for two years and then I've spent the last five years in the United States interesting so yeah so what, what was that like living in Singapore for high school because when you're of the age of going to high school you, you get to the point where you're not so much you can consciously think about things and you can consciously uh, view the world in your own way and see how other people view the world and maybe other people view things differently from you. 
So as you were coming of age, if you will, what was that experience like living in Singapore at the time? Right. So like when you're growing up and moving around a lot, it's, it's like you just get to see the world in kind of a different way. Cause like, if you're living in the same place your entire life, you're kind of like limited in like the people that you speak to, the ideas that you hear commonly. So uh, it's kind of hard to say. I'm not really saying that I think differently to people. It's more that I've learned more things because I've been forced to be in like all these other places. Is, um, have you been in the, which country have you been in the longest? Is it the States that you've been living in the longest? Yeah, currently five years in the States. That's and then I had like four years in England and four years in Brunei. Uh, so so when, you, when you stay like a, when you're in a country for like five years and like it, uh, it seems like you'll probably be here for uh, a little while. Does it feel, does it feel different not moving? Because I think I understand what you're saying. Like you just get accustomed to that way of life that you probably just don't think of it as outside of the norm when you, for you, because it wasn't, you know? So right. is, it, is it different? being in the same place now not really i think honestly like because of my upbringing like any i can make any place kind of just feel like home really uh i mean one of the weirdest parts about like moving around a lot is your upbringing is very much different to most people's upbringings because when people live in like one place their entire life they they have like you know they have their friends they have their way of life and that's just that's just how you live your life like the entire time unless of course a lot of people move nowadays so like it's not like surprising if somebody moves but like you have like a culture that you base your life on kind of right. it, not not that everybody will base their life on that culture you know some people hate their own culture but like it's the way you were brought up so like you know yeah so how is it that you cuz you say you kind of find home basically wherever you're at how what are some uh what are some ways that you do that because there's people that have lived in the same place for their whole lives and don't feel at home you know so that's a that's a life skill that right there i mean for me it's like it's home is kind of like it's something that you can just make for yourself like when i go to a new place the first thing i really want to do is just meet people and like make friends because like it's really tough to be in a new place knowing nobody. Like it just, you get really lonely and like, it's just, I don't know, it sucks to be alone. So, so go on. Yeah, so the first step for me is like, just finding people that I enjoy talking to basically. Gotcha, so I guess for this question, we can really only compare it uh, the U.S. and Singapore, because like I said, before you were in high school, you're you really too young to understand all the complexities and how people view things differently. But how what would you say once uh, one thing that sticks out to you in that how how people in Singapore view things differently to people in the U.S. and and vice versa? Is there is there any one thing or maybe a group of things that is different uh, from the U.S. to Singapore? Uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, between the U.S. and Singapore, I guess the culture of studying is very different. So, like, 
in Singapore, I have cousins who are Singaporean. So in Singapore, the culture of studying there is you go to school from like nine to five or nine to three or whatever. And then from like three until 8 p.m., you have after school tuition, which everybody is expected to go to. So basically you have people studying like 12 hours a day. And it's just kind of ridiculous. Like, you know, the stereotype Asians are good at math. I think anybody would be good at math if they were studying math 12 hours a day. Like, it's just like, it's ridiculous. Sure. The amount of, That's ex the, the expectation of work is a lot higher in Singapore than for like people who are like young compared to like people in the United States. Wow. What, what, uh, uh, where, on, Josh? I don't know off the top of my head, where does uh, Singapore rank in terms of uh, education? It's they pretty have, high. Yeah, they gotta be. Yeah, I so, think it's one of the top countries when it comes to education. I, I'm I not might exactly be, sure. I might be wrong on this, but uh, when I've looked this up in the past, I think that when we're looking at high school education specifically, we're not talking about college and we're not talking about uh, before high school, but uh, I've seen in the past that I think Singapore actually frequently ranks as the number one high school system in the world and, and sometimes Finland uh, trails as number two in the best high school systems in the world. So it's, it's definitely exactly. up there for sure. It's kind of interesting because they have very different educational systems. I think Finland is more free in terms of like the way that they teach students compared to Singapore where it's kind of just shoved into their heads, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I've never been to Singapore, but things I've heard about it from documentaries or whatever is that the government can be very, very strict and to think against the government or to uh, act out against the government in any way, could, there could be some real repercussions and that kind of affects the way that people think. Uh, would you say that's true from your experience there or what do you think? Well, I mean, I've talked to many different people in Singapore and I think this applies to any country. The most important thing, like you should never really stereotype anybody based on their country because when you go to a new country and you meet all these people, you kind of just realize that it doesn't matter what country you're in. Every country has like different types of people. Everybody's an individual. It's like they will, they will have like the traits of their country, like, or beliefs from their country. But like in the end, they're still kind of very individual. Like you can find any type of person in any country, like free sure. thinkers, people who just believe in the government who are extremely patriotic. They're everywhere. I think those people definitely exist in countries like this, just as they exist everywhere in the world, right? But uh, I think uh, maybe there may be some differences in how you can voice your opinion. And I'll give you an example. Um, when I spent five months in China, this is a very interesting story. I spent five months in China and I was at a, I was at two different campuses. Once for the first like six weeks, I was in a campus in downtown Shanghai. And then the, the rest of the semester, I was at like a bigger campus, more similar to like Purdue or something, you know, that was kind of in the outskirts of Shanghai. But during those first six weeks, it was, uh, I was going out to eat at a restaurant with one of my friends who was another American, right? And we're eating at this restaurant and this elderly Chinese man comes up to us said he might have been in his 60s or, or something like that. And he was actually a professor at the university we were studying at. I can't remember exactly what he taught, but I think it was maybe uh, 
economics or economic theory or something like that, right? And he sits down with us for like 40 minutes and he, he's telling us, he, he's like looking around his shoulders the whole time, making sure he's not on camera or anything. And he's like whispering to us. He's like, I, I can't be telling you these things. He's like, if I tell you these things out loud, like I can seriously get in trouble. But he's basically talking about how the Communist Party in China is extraordinarily oppressive. And to have like free thought and to think against the uh, Communist Party in China, there could be huge repercussions. And he was basically saying like, one of the negatives of, of being in China is like, you could build your dream home or something, right? And if the government wanted to, it can just come in and kick you out and say, we're, we're tearing down your home to, to build, you know, for development or something like that. So there isn't really this idea of personal property. And it was just so interesting because this is somebody who you would regard as a very intelligent man. He's a, he's a professor, professor at Zhao Tong University, one of the best universities in China, right? And he, he's, he's expressing his, his fear of the government. He's like, I can't tell you this, but... He, he really said that he envied, not, not just the U.S., but he envied uh, some of the Western ideals when it comes to being free, you know? Right. So I, I was curious to I see mean, if maybe there were some similarities with that in Singapore. I'm not sure. Well, in terms of controlling information, I think the level in China is definitely higher Insane. than most places. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Like compared to Singapore, there are a lot of strict laws, like, you know, against drug use or like there are some ridiculous laws, just like I had a friend who got fined for smoking, like, so you can't like smoke inside of like buildings or like, you know, under buildings, mm -hmm. but my friend yeah. was smoking like outside, like a high rise next to a building mm -hmm. and he got fined like 300 Singapore dollars, which is like 200 US dollars just randomly for I don't even think he was breaking the law like I'm pretty sure you're allowed to smoke outside but maybe he wasn't a no smoking area I don't know but it was you know they take their laws seriously in Singapore and I'm pretty sure if you're found with any kind of drugs including weed you they kill you I think they kill you yeah no they do they, they, I, you get I, the death penalty I've heard I've heard a story of two Australians who had I don't know what drugs on them but uh they, they held them captive and I guess the Australian government was like, please give our citizens back to us. And the Singaporean government looked at if they were to give them back as a, a signal or a sign of weakness. So they're like, I'm not going to do that. We're going to kill these people, you know, which is kind of insane. Yeah. <laughs> and for anybody Pretty listening, crazy. for anybody listening, this is something that uh, I strongly recommend you do whenever you are visiting a new country, no matter what country it is you need to look up what those laws are in that country because if you know a lot of things can happen when you're when you're overseas you could be you know partying out at the bar scene and some guy comes up to you and you know whatever can happen right uh you need to know what the repercussions of your decisions are because they could cost you your life especially in, in singapore and countries like that you know yeah but there's actually another thing that your story i think says to me like you know there was this professor who is not within you know the expectations of what the chinese government wants he hasn't let what the chinese government wants affect the way that he sees the world which i think is important to state because like you know we can hate on the chinese government but you got to know that 
the Chinese people are separate to the Chinese government, even though there are plenty of people that support the Chinese government in China, you'll realize, you know, everybody's different. People think differently. You can find people that, I'm sure there's plenty of people that hate the Chinese government in China. Certainly. But, you know. Yeah, any, anywhere it, you go, you're going to find free thinkers, right? Because, I mean. Well, hopefully. Yeah, sure, you're, there are different factors that affect the socialization of people in different countries, but the bottom line is everybody's still a homo sapien. Everybody's still genetically the same. So you're going to probably see the same intelligence distributions generally and you know you're gonna you're gonna have the same types of, of people and the same types of thinking in in different countries it's just what what varies is how how uh you can proclaim those thoughts and if you can do so freely in a public manner yeah it depends on the country yeah so okay so you went to a singaporean high school that was like a boarding school that you went to um, yeah. What did you, you came to the U.S. Why did you come to the U.S.? Why did you come to Purdue University? Uh, I mean, so at the time I wanted to study mechanical engineering and my choices were either I go to the U.K. or I go to the U.S.A. So for me, I'd never been to the U.S.A. And for me, like job opportunities in like Europe are not an issue because I'm European. So like, even if I went to the USA, I could always come back to Europe. It's not an issue. So for me, it was an opportunity to see the US, you know, the US to the rest of the world is like, it's kind of like, you know, this huge country where there's a huge amount of business and like, it's just, I basically came here to learn about the country and see if it's a place that I wanted to live in. Eventually, you know. What do you think so far? Is it uh, is it what you expected? Are you getting out of uh, living here what you uh, what you intended to? Uh, the U.S. is an interesting place. I think one of the most interesting things is how big the U.S. is and how different different parts of the U.S.A. are. Like people have widely different beliefs in different places, like general beliefs. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's pretty insane. Like, I like the free speech. I do think that you, the level of capitalism here compared to Europe is like, such kind of a big difference. Hmm. Like being an American citizen must be interesting. Cause like, I feel like the US is a great place for people that have money. But if you don't have money, I would probably prefer to live in Europe just because they take care of like they try to take care of everyone in europe and in the us it doesn't seem like they're taking care of everybody they're taking care of more people that have money which is you know it's an incentive to make money but it's I also agree with like, that i agree with that if you look at yeah. at places in europe they have free education they have uh free health care right these these things are not uh they're not only reserved for the rich, right? And in the U.S., they are reserved for the rich, which is kind of insane, to be honest with you. But uh, I do think that from an entrepreneurial expect or perspective, I think the U.S. is the best country to be in. I may be biased, and uh, that, that could be very well be the case. But until I'm presented with information saying otherwise, I think if you are a business owner, the U.S. is a great place to be in. Uh, just strictly no, due I, to that capitalistic nature. I mean, you know? I'd agree with that, yeah. This is a pro-business country, for sure. 
Um, I mean, it's interesting because like when you make a pro-business country and you focus on capitalism, you can like, you have a lot of innovation and like you can attract, you know, the best people in the world to come live in your country because you provide the greatest salaries, you provide, you know, the greatest of many things. So like, uh, there are flaws to every system. Like, you know, in Europe, we also have issues with like providing healthcare to everyone because everybody has like is entitled to healthcare. So like, if you want to get like a operation, it will actually take you like maybe a month or something to get through the waiting list to get this operation where if you have money in the U S you can just get the operation right away. So like there's like balances, like in Europe, there are systems where you can expedite things. If like your life is very much in danger. So like, that's a good system, I think, but like, you know, it's not like any system is perfect. It's just about mm -hmm. trying to find the best system for everyone. Yeah. So I've uh, recently been going down the rabbit hole, trying to learn as much as I can about both capitalism and socialism. And uh, after all the research I've done, it, it it's seen, it's clear to me that I, you certainly can't just let capitalism run wild. Right. Because if you do that, you, you get six-year-olds in factories, right? And things yeah. of that nature. So I think there definitely needs to be certain interventions. And I think right. that for sure. And I think that there's no reason why you can't have free, free health care. Like basically give that as a right. And the reason I say that is the U.S. makes a lot of money and especially taking into account all of the businesses that are using robotics to generate their profits, right? I, I really don't see something wrong. Like if, if a business is using a robot to replace a human worker that is expediting and, and increasing their profits more than a human work, worker would, I don't see anything wrong with taking a small percentage off the top and, and putting that towards anything that could be of use, whether it's universal basic income, whether it's uh, free healthcare or free education, right? And it, yeah. maybe it doesn't no, even have to be free. Maybe it doesn't even have to be free, but at least I don't think college should cost you $250,000, right? Like that's insanity. Uh, there are definitely oh, things yeah, that can be done. And Josh, I think you and I were talking about the concept of, of billionaires and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with someone being a billionaire. I want to put that out there, but I think that basically the uh the tax bracket system in the united states um once you hurt once you hit a particular point of salary your your tax bracket does not continue increasing right so i don't know exactly what that point is whether it's a million dollars or five hundred thousand whatever it is but let's say it's a million dollars that means that a million dollar salary is paying the same amount in tax as a hundred million dollar salary right which i don't think that necessarily has to be the case i think it can continue right. scaling up and I'm not saying it has to be something as aggressive as Scandinavia or, you know, Norway or something like that. But, but I think it could be a little more than it is now. And that, that little bit could probably go a long way, you know. It, it certainly yeah. would. It's, it's odd that it's like, I mean, a percentage is proportional to what you make, you know. And I don't understand, like, why, why there's ever pushback against that. It's like, I mean, you, like, a billionaire paying 10% is the same as you you paying 10 percent it's it's proportional to your income uh yeah. i i saw uh i can't remember 
it might have been uh, Ra Rahul actually, I think that had, had posted this. It was just like this breakdown of the profit margins in university. And like universities have so anywhere between like a 70 to 90% like profit margin. Some universities, I, I won't speak for all, but it was saying that it's possible for like a university to have like somewhere between a 70 and 90% uh, profit margin. They said that no other industry has a has been able to keep that large of a profit margin uh, margin as long as universities have. So it's completely insane. It's it's, yeah, it's just yeah. it just doesn't make sense. And, and it really just speaks to the idea. Go on, Carlos. Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say I think times are changing like a lot. Like the reason universities were worth or were worth so much back like in the day, like maybe even a decade ago, is because they had like a monopoly on the information. Like the mm -hmm. internet didn't exist. So like, if you wanted to become like an engineer, you wanted to study something of higher education, it wasn't readily available unless you went to your local library or something. But even the local library isn't gonna have all the information. Like universities have their own libraries, they have all these resources, like it makes sense to pay that amount because it was so exclusive back then. That, that yeah. makes sense. And but, I think we're definitely seeing a switch to more online learning. And I think that this COVID situation only expedited that. Uh, I mean, you, you're currently taking classes right now, Carlos, and your, your classes have been shifted to online, correct? Yeah. And everything yeah. was shifted online. And, and just think about how much money you could, you could save from a college student perspective if you started taking your courses online and you stopped uh, paying for room and board and, you know, everything that comes with, with college tuition, right? Uh, there, there's actually this program that I've been... Uh, considering for quite some time now it's a georgia tech program and they're actually offering a master's in computer science all online for ten thousand dollars the entire program ten thousand dollars right that's like what that's less than a semester at purdue even for somebody who is in state right like you were a you were a foreigner so you paid 40 grand or whatever per semester you know yeah it's pretty expensive yeah and I think overall, that's a, that's a good transition, you know, just, just making information more available, you know, because no, I, I really, it's something that I, I don't think only the rich should have access to. If, if someone grew up in a very poor uh, community, I think that their access to a good education should be, it should be just as easy for them to get an education and enrich their brain as somebody who grew up in a rich family. Right. No, I agree. It should be. I think another interesting point you made was like about the AI is going to, you know, start taking a lot of jobs away from people. And like, maybe this is an argument for more socialism because like, eventually we're going to be in a position where there's like no more manual labor jobs. Like all unskilled labor is going to get taken out of the force by machines. Or well, not all, but like I, I don't know about all, but a lot. Yeah, and like, what are we going to do with all these unemployed people? Like, they need to be able to live. They need money. Like, there needs to be a system put in place to help these people. And like, the current system, if this were to happen, would definitely not work. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. I'd say. Yeah. Do you know what's something that's kind of always been on my mind and. It's an interesting idea to, to think about, um, especially from an investment perspective. 
and I really never knew what the factors that manipulated this this I, this fact were. And I, I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on this, but basically, from a, an investment standpoint, we're told just buy into the U.S. stock market and it always goes up goes up forever, right? You're going to get your 10% returns on an annual basis, adjusted over time on average, no matter what, right? And we, we're kind of just brainwashed to believe this. But uh, one of the things that you can look at is you can look at the Japanese stock market, okay? And if you look at the Japanese stock market, you'll see that it actually has not grown since 1990, okay? So keep that in mind. Now let's look at the European stock market as a whole. The European stock market as a whole has not grown since right around the year 2000, 2001, right around there, right? So the, the idea that stock markets just always increase, that's not the case, clearly. We have cases that disprove that. So I was thinking, well, what are some of the, what are some of the factors that are, influ that are influencing this uh, occurrence that we're, that we're witnessing? And I don't know what proportion each of these factors have. I think I have an idea on which one uh, impacts this more, but here's the, here's the two things that I've kind of come up with. And one of those things being, uh, the US is very capitalistic in nature, much more than, than Europe, right? I can't really, you know, I, I don't know that much about the Japanese system, but I can compare this to Europe. So I think that, I certainly don't think that this capitalistic nature uh, is solely responsible for the US stock market always increasing, but I think it maybe affects it a little bit. But the thing that I, affects this more than anything is actually, if you look at the developed world, so look at the first world nations, right? And let's take the US out of that. So we only look at the, US, the first world nations that are not the US, right? You'll notice one thing, and that's that all of these nations are a retirement community. They're a bunch of old people, okay? And what does that mean? How does, how does that relate to the economy? Well, old people aren't the people spending in the economy. And if your economy is consumer driven, right? Then if you have a retirement community, you're not gonna have that consumer side of things. The young people are the people taking on college loans. They're taking on mortgages and loans from the bank for a car maybe. They're, they're buying all these things. Millennials, they're, they're having these expensive gym memberships and, you know, Netflix, this, that, and the other, right? You don't see that in the older communities. The older communities are about to retire and they're like, oh, wow, I need to start saving all my money. I am not going to be consuming like this, right? So I think this is the biggest factor. Uh, if you look at Europe and Japan and things like this, I think that's mainly why these stock markets have, have uh, really started to, to stagnate and, and, and not increase. And if you look at the U.S., the U.S. is actually pretty, uh, it, it has a, a large base of, of younger people still. So mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's a huge factor as to why uh, the economy is, is still increasing in the U.S. If we ever start to see uh, a lot more old people in the U.S. than young people, then I think we have an economic problem. And I mean, I'm sure you guys are aware of uh, the one-child policy and, and the current uh, the current situation that China is about to embark on because they're, they're, they have a bunch of old people due to that one child policy and no young people. So it'll be interesting to see how they navigate this over the, the next 10 years or so. But what are you guys' thoughts on that? On uh, saying about China, I was looking something up. So, so China, basically they implemented a one child policy 
a while back. Mm -hmm. And that has resulted in there being hardly any 20 year olds in China, right? Like there's, there's not really a large percentage of their population is, is not our age. It's a, it's a bunch of older people. And the younger people in the economy are the spenders and the people who grow the economy. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this situation. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about that uh, when we were talking about um, just like kind of sustainability and like when AI takes over, I wonder if you're going to see that because uh, I mean, one, one thought is that once AI takes over, there's just going to be too many people out of work. So we definitely don't want more people. <laughs> so I wonder if countries like the U.S. would eat. I don't know if you could. Um, I doubt that you could uh, here. But I wonder if they would uh, exercise uh, something like that. I'm not taking a stance on that. I don't, I'm not mm -hmm. going to take a stance as to whether or not I think that's right or wrong. But, but there is the, the thought that, yeah, there's a, a lot of people. In regards yeah. to how it affects, uh, yeah, I think I agree with everything that you're saying. When you have a, when you have older population, they they don't take risks and they don't spend money. You you wouldn't see. Uh, you're not going to see growth. I do want to so, add on to what you're saying really quick. So you're talking about AI, and and maybe that that won't be the case. Well, actually, if you look at Japan. Japan has had this problem. They, they sell more diapers to old people than they sell to young people, okay? That's wild. <laughs> yeah, but, but because of this, they've also become the world leader in robotics. <laughs> so, hmm. so exactly okay. what you're saying makes sense, you know? They, they don't have a, a, a community to, to really drive the economy, so they had to innovate and create robots that could drive the economy, essentially, you know? Interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess that's one factor. Like, there's a lot of factors to all of these, like, just the way that the world is working. I do think the point about population growth being a problem is definitely a huge problem that we have right now. Because, like, there's so much competition. Like, you see all of these, like, memes about, like, millennials and stuff. Like, you know, we can't find jobs, stuff like that. It's true to an extent like there is a lot more competition in the market and a lot of that is due to globalization but a lot of it is also just you know population growth is huge you look at china and india or just the entire world in general the population keeps growing and growing and growing and growing so whether or not having a one-child policy is a solution to that i mean it is to that specific problem but the solution causes other problems and like can we permanently keep, you know, economic growth going forever? Like there's a limited amount of space on earth. Right. Like, what are we going to it do? It certainly can't. Once, like, it can't increase forever. It can't right? keep growing forever. It just physically can't. Like, unless you're just making stuff up, like unless like the stock market is all made up and like, you know, you're just making up economic growth. Like it's all just, I mean, in the end it is kind of made up. We made it up. Human beings made it up. But like, sure. it's just, I don't know. It's not like something that can keep growing forever. I don't know. That's, that's certainly true. Um, the, I guess the, the idea is how, how close are we to that point? You know, I, I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think we'll be there for a few hundred years or, or so. But, but what yeah. the point you're speaking to that uh, overpopulation is a real thing. 
not only for how it affects human lives, right? But how does it affect every other being on earth, every other creature on earth, whether it's plants, animals, insects, whatever it is, uh, we are adversely affecting this, this planet. Uh, I've heard terms of people, people thinking of humans as like the cancer of planet earth. We're destroying this place, man. Absolutely destroying this place. Yeah, and it's why you know I I I think I I think that everybody will be able to actually have a personal experience and see how much of a difference it makes when we're not operating like we normally do. I just I walked on the beach. I've never seen Lake Michigan uh, blue. And I haven't seen that in like I can't even remember the last time. Like the last few years. It's been green and nasty, but like I walked over there and I was like, man, this actually looks like a lake, but everything's shut down. That casino that's right there is not, uh, is not open. Uh, a lot of them, uh, um, the mills, I, I'm pretty sure are producing less. You work at one, so I'm sure you could, have, and you, you've told me that they're not making as much, right? That's correct. So they're polluting less. And uh, I think we're all gonna see, there's pictures, man, of the LA skyline. And uh, like they had a picture from like 2019 and then a picture post shutdown. Apparently like there's mountains that you can see in the skyline that you couldn't see in 2019. It's wild. That's insane. To speaking to what you're saying and how ridiculous uh, people pollute things. My dad actually told me a story of, you're looking at Lake Michigan and you're like, wow, it's blue, right? Mm-hmm. He said uh, when he was a kid, I, I might get the year wrong, but I think he said it was like 1969 or 67 or something. He was a kid. And uh, there was something on TV. I don't know if it was a river near Lake Erie or something like this, but it had something to do with some local factory, right? And they were polluting that river. And it was mm-hmm. like this big spectacle because the river caught on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Let that oh, sink in for a second, style. man. Yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. What? <laughs> That's crazy. It's, it's insane. And and, and see, yeah. this is see, this is a real problem that I think capitalism causes. Uh, especially if you look at like the degradation of our rainforests and all the habitats of of creatures and animals that live in these rainforests, right? Like, man, we're we're destroying this place, man. And mm-hmm. I really don't know how much longer we can we can do this right like we can certainly destroy this place for the next 100 years 200 years maybe 500 years but there comes a point where does this place become inhabitable i don't know well i think um, let me find this doctor's name that i oh also i looked up uh who what countries were the youngest and united states is 158 so we're, we're not too close. Yeah, uh, we're certainly not the youngest. There's a lot of the developing world that's, that's very young. Yeah, they're pretty young. That's, uh, that was pretty interesting. But I want to find this. Uh, you guys go ahead. I'm going to try to find this doctor's name. What were you going to say, Carlos? Uh, I was just thinking about like regulations about the environment and stuff like that. So like the way that capitalism works is if you put in more regulation, you're going to slow down the economy right Mm -hmm. so like all these like uh regulations against the use of petrol or something like that it's obviously 
going to slow down economic growth because people need to figure out different ways to you know deal with problems but like a lot of people that make these regulations honestly don't think at all about like the future like they only think about stuff within their own lifetime like mm-hmm. i always find it really weird like what if like the people that make these regulations do these people not have like kids or anything like do they just not care at all about any human beings in the future yeah. it's so messed up like everybody thinks so short term and it yeah. never really made sense to me um, uh, like, if you think about it if you think about that concept for a quick second though i think we've almost evolved to think short term like like what evolutionary reason could there possibly be for uh thinking about generations 200 years in the future you know it's kind of always like survive 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 type thing you know that may have an effect i mean thinking about short-term survival like in the now obviously you're going to evolve to care about that but i think we should have also evolved to care about like the future because like evolution is about you know adapting to situations and you know surviving and like i think caring about yeah but i think caring about survival in the short term and the long term maybe the long term survival is actually more important than the short term survival in many cases like how are you going to say evolution only cares about short term survival when it's actually what's been causing us to survive this long in the first place you know mm-hmm. technically evolution has done long-term survival kind of mm-hmm. you know well, you well i think way. i think if you look at uh how humans have lived for the last you know few million years I, I don't really think there was ever a time in human history where food was so abundant as it is now you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad yeah i'm glad you mentioned food because while we're on this topic of sustainability i heard this this is something that uh kind of had me worried um dr uh, Hyman, I believe, is how you say his name. He wrote a book. Uh, he's a uh, he wrote a book called the Ten Day Diet Detox, and he uh, he was on a podcast I was listening to, and just talk. He ended up getting into um, sustainability. He actually was talking about just like a lot of the diets that have been popular in America. He was actually talking about um, uh, how a lot of vegan uh, food is uh, it, it just like it's like the i think he was talking about the impossible burger like stuff like that um uh kills the soil faster and it it it, uh the crops don't last as long so like that's true you can't yeah And, and uh in that same podcast he mentions and like when he said that i'm like no nobody else is nobody else is gonna talk about this he's like uh i forget what organization it is but they, they, uh, he claimed that there are 60 harvests left if we continue at the same rate of um, uh, soil degradation. the way that we are. Yeah, propping yeah that, the way. That's, a, that's a real engineering problem that, that people need to start allocating uh, mental effort towards. Yeah, 60 harvests is not a lot. <laughs> that's that's yeah. wild. I, I know there are certain ways of, of of growing food and yeah, raising um, animals that like for, for example like movable fences like uh 
like cows eating the grass and then you move the fence and, and things like that. There, there are certain practices yeah. and I'm, I'm not an expert on this by any means. So definitely go look it up yourself, but there are certain practices that help to mitigate this. And I think that much more funding and effort on, on a large scale needs to be dedicated towards not only implementing those practices, but, but perfecting them as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you brought up the the idea of uh, veganism, and I, I just want to put this out there for uh, a lot of people who may be considering veganism. Um, first, I want to say that I respect the ethics of the ideology. If your reason for doing vegan veganism is because you don't think it's right to kill other animals, then I say I respect that wholeheartedly, okay? But if that is your logic, then you going and buying produce from the grocery store is directly contributing to killing animals. And why do I say that? Because it, just like you said, people gloss over that, that idea of 60 harvests left. People like vegans tend to gloss over this and not just vegans, but, but a lot of people even talk about these, uh, two ideologies, veganism versus non-veganism, they, they gloss over this. And that's that uh, whenever these big combines and machines are going through a crop, the harvesting the crops and things like this, they are killing thousands. Actually, they're killing a ridiculous number of mice, birds, shrews, insects, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And I guess the idea is, well, if a life is a life, right? then uh, by buying uh, produce from, from grocery stores that are, that are uh, harvested in that manner, you're directly contributing, contributing to killing millions of organisms, right? Not only like insects and things like this, but, but organisms that are much higher on the level of consciousness, like birds and, and rodents and things like this. So th- this is something you need to keep in mind. If, if your, your one goal is to not kill any other animals, then there are still ways you can do that, but it's just a lot less practical. You'd have to start gardening, right? But I just wanted to point that out because I think, I think a lot of people who do go vegan and are completely gung-ho towards the ideology, which I said, I respect the ideology, but uh, I, it's an important fact that, that, needs to be, that needs to be talked about and brought up. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. In, in that regard, I mean, like you, when you start talking about all this, like in those regards, it's like, it's almost like we already have too many people here because <laughs> it's the, the reason we do all these things is so that everybody can have food. And it's like, mm-hmm. yep. yeah, there's not a lot of ways that you could produce. I, mean, I think it's just another like example of like capitalism killing the planet. <laughs> yeah. It's like the reason that they have to do this is to be efficient enough to feed all the people on the planet. It's like a combination of overpopulation and just a bunch of capitalism. It's just like mm-hmm. horrendous. But like, what is the, what's the word? What is the counter to that? Like the what's, alternative? what else can we do? Yeah. The alternative. Like given this amount of people. We, yeah. Like if we go back to like everybody making their own or, you know, farming, or creating their own food. Nobody knows how to do that currently. And I don't even know if there is enough. I mean, one of the interesting there's extreme, veganism. There's, there's a large uh, 
percentage of the population that just wouldn't even, uh, even if they did know, like if you were the, you're, if you're in the city, you just don't even have that option. Yeah. But uh, what I was going to say was like, if you think about like veganism and like how much food you can make it using like crops compared to like raising animals, like the amount of food that you can make through raising crops is huge compared to the amount of food that you can make through raising animals because of like the energy cycle mm -hmm. so like to make like a cow you actually need to grow a bunch of crops and then feed the cow and then all yeah. of that energy is wasted through the cow and then like you actually end up with less food by creating mm -hmm. meat than you end up by creating crops it's like the basic crops, idea of the energy cycle yes yeah. that's a that's a valid point for sure I don't, I don't know what the solution is. I think that a few things come to mind. And if we look at how the world is run right now, it's, it's run by energy extracting mechanisms. And many of these mechanisms like fossil fuels or whatever, they're, they're inducing significant amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So my initial thought just fumbling around on this idea is that I think there needs to be a lot more effort put into green uses of energy. And really the only way that I see that happening is if there is a financial incentive to do so, because that, that's how humans work, right? Nobody's, nobody's gonna dedicate years of their lives to solving a problem like this if they're not gonna get paid to do it. So there needs to be some type of financial incentive to do this. And I, I hope that incentive comes soon. I really do. I mean, it may be already too late. To like, like we've we, we provided financial incentives to save the world, but like it hasn't been enough. And as a human, as you know, the human race and like how governments work, we're too selfish to like save the planet. Like, honestly, that's just how I see it. It's, it sucks, but like, it's hard to bring together a bunch of people to do the hard thing mm -hmm. than it is to just keep living life the way it is and just keep enjoying the short term, you know? Yeah, this reminds me of an idea uh, that I heard once. And basically, if you really want to, if you really want a huge, huge change in human behavior or like some huge uh, collective uh, cooperation between humans on a particular task, then you really need one of three things. One of those things being war, another one of those things being religion, okay? And the third thing being some extraordinarily uh, devastating cataclysmic event like a meteor is about to hit Earth in six months or something, right? So those those three uh, things, no, war, religion, and a cataclysmic this. event, can drive those change like that. Yeah, a devastating event would be a pandemic, and we see <laughs> we see America. we we definitely didn't come together on that one. Yeah. So so the issue with the pandemic is that the the death rate. Well, I'm not downplaying this by any means. It's, it's a terrible pandemic. And for anybody who has got it and for anybody who's lost uh, 
a loved one or anything to this pandemic, I, my heart goes out to you, but I don't think we saw that cooperation because the death rate of this pandemic was simply too low for that to happen. Imagine if the death rate of COVID-19 was 60% with the same spreadability, spreadability right? Yeah. I think people there people would be panicking for sure. People <laughs> would be panicking would and a lot of people would be dying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I guess the survival of the fitness. The thing, the thing about a disease like that though is the disease would die out really quickly as well cuz like a death rate of 60% like more than half the people that get it will die with the disease and then the disease can't spread. Like the thing about like a pandemic is like actually the death rate of a pandemic can't be that high because then it can't spread. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I didn't know. So like yeah. So what is that sweet spot where it can still spread? 20%? We seem to be we seem to be in a sweet spot right now. Like a lot of people have died from this pandemic and whether I think the issue with this pandemic for like people not taking it seriously is that there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of people think that, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm young and fit. So like, this isn't my problem. I could just go do whatever I want. Like that's completely untrue. Like young people are also dying from, you know, coronavirus they, they are at significantly lower rates likely. but it's it, it's it's less likely but it's not only that i i don't think it's the same idea with people thinking forward into the future i i don't think people are really internalizing the idea that they can pick it up and not even show symptoms and then go give it to their mom or their dad you know mm -hmm. yeah that that's like also could, at play here you could kill someone with your carelessness like yeah. i don't think people realize that like it's People are just thinking for themselves, like they don't. And there's really that idea where people. there's that idea where it can't happen to me, right? That's mm -hmm. I don't that's, know where that came from. Like I over don't know where that how came many from cases? Either. How many cases has there been so far? Like it can't Billion. happen to you. There's it's been millions in the U.S., man. And it's like it's insane to think that way. Speaking of which, uh, I was actually uh, watching a podcast today on. Uh, basically the certain things that may or may not affect the immune system and how, how you can, what are some actionable steps that you can execute on to improve your immune system? And a lot of the uh, media has said like, you can't improve your immune system. Well, first of all, that's insane, right? Because number one, the number one thing from, from all of the uh, experience that I have looking into this and, and just being a health nerd, right? Uh, one thing that can improve your immune system more than anything else probably is getting adequate sleep. Uh, much of much of the developed world is getting less than seven hours of sleep. You, you should aim to get eight hours of sleep. That's one thing that can improve the immune system. But the topic of the podcast that I was talking about today or watching today was vitamin D3. And this is not proven, but there seems to be a strong correlation with people who are getting more severe cases of uh, COVID-19, they have a, a huge deficiency in vitamin D3, okay? And uh, it, here in the U.S., we, we've seen that this uh, disease has disproportionately been affecting African Americans, okay? And one of the things, I am not by any means saying that I'm qualified to, to point out why this is happening, and I'm, I'm not doing that. I, I'm just pointing out a fact, and that's that 
African Americans and not only African Americans, but anybody who has darker skin and more melanin in their skin. So maybe someone from India or Mexico or whatever, they, uh, they, when you put them in America where they're not exposed to the sunlight that they, uh, their genetics are used to, right? They have extremely low levels of vitamin D3, extremely low levels compared to someone who's genetically used to less sun. And that may or may not be a factor as to why uh, African-Americans are, are being affected disproportionately. But one thing we can do from that, whether this is a, a true or not, I mean, I'm going to start supplementing vitamin D3. I'm going to do 5,000 IUs a day. And I, I'm not in a place to recommend something to someone else. But to me, it just makes sense that that's probably a good idea, regardless of if it has any effect on the... Uh, on the the pandemic or not i think that could be beneficial yeah to your health i mean well, vitamin d3 deficiency is definitely going to be a problem right now with everybody staying home yeah well, sunlight. that uh i because I, I i can't remember where i heard this but i uh even though florida is opening back up they aren't seeing as much of a spike um because of the warmer temperatures uh and because more people are getting sun uh, or it could, it, I, I won't say that, could but be. it could be because that yeah. uh, more people are getting some. It's interesting to be in a, um, uh, it's interesting that we, we've had this thing happen and it's like, we can sit here and kind of talk and pontificate and kind of just theorize things. And it's completely new, like no nobody knows so i mean and i'm not saying that our theories are as good as a doctor's they're but, not, but uh, yeah. <laughs> they're not but uh but there, there's just there is a lot of yeah there, there is not a lot of yeah. actual solid uh research on it yet so and it's I interesting wanna... to be able to kind of research along with uh the uh the professionals for sure and i do want to point out uh I do want to make it very clear that we are not saying that we know why something is happening. We're just bringing up an idea that could potentially uh, have some type of influence, no matter how big or small. Um, but one of the issues with African-Americans, at least in the U, that makes no sense, with African-Americans, I was going to say African-Americans in the U.S., but <laughs> obviously they're in the U.S., uh, is that this demographic of people is probably less likely to have uh, as good of access to healthcare as uh, Caucasians or something like that. So that's certainly a factor too, without a right. doubt. But the studies that I believe, if I'm not remembering this incorrectly, uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, there's actually a podcast with Dr. Rhonda, Dr. Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Um, <laughs> in this podcast, <laughs> I don't know what I said. In this uh podcast they uh, she apparently said that there have been studies that have controlled for that variable of not having access to uh as good healthcare or, or easy access to healthcare and there seems to still be some type of significant correlation so that that doesn't mean causation but there seems to be a significant correlation yeah it'll be uh, it'll be interesting looking back when everybody because it's obviously different when um and then it's, you know, when qualified people can look at this, it can look back, you know, uh, at and use everything that happened um, 
throughout the span of this, you know, in 2025, when uh, medical experts can look back. I mean, I hope they do look back and, and find, you know, uh, early signs and reasons that this happened and, uh, and hopefully we, uh, use it going forward. Hopefully. Yeah. And, and I hope that's the case, man, because it, this isn't like the, it's not the first virus that's ever broken out. It's like the millionth virus that's broken out, you know, over the course of, you know, earth. And, uh, it's it's just strange to me because we had the SARS outbreak in what was it 2002? Why why was there not more more research done on that? And I, I guess it was because it just died out, right? Like mm-hmm. people just stopped getting that particular virus. So I guess it it seemed to be not as of high of importance. But it's it goes back to the whole idea of just not thinking of the future, right? Yeah, like. Mm-hmm. Like this, that very mechanism is at play here. Uh, we had the Spanish flu. We knew that these things could happen. There's, there's been experts and, and you know, people saying, hey, we're not prepared for this. We're not prepared for this. We need to be more prepared for this. Put more money here. We need a team of people to devise a plan, like uh, globally, right? It, I hope that we learn from this yeah. and that this, this, doesn't, this doesn't happen in the no. future to the same extent. To circle back to um, what we were kind of talking about earlier uh, in regards to how, uh, you know, we were talking about some of the countries that uh, Carlos has lived in, and we asked just a little bit about how people view the government, and we got into a little bit about that. One thing that has occurred to me is that um, I think in America, we we have a certain uh, brainwashing that if the government is saying everything is okay, that we have this idea that, oh, well, like the government is made up of a bunch of very smart people that are gonna, you know, that are that we vote in that are acting in our best interest and they're gonna make the best decisions. And then, you know, in light of recent <laughs> events, in light of recent events, you start to think, well, wait a minute. What, how, how is it that they are qualified uh, as they're a bunch of monkeys man. to uh to comment and pontificate on you know uh on a health crisis and sideline the the one doctor that they do have fauci like just, you start to you start to realize that there there's a little bit of a a, a blind trust in uh the government in 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 the states almost like there is in other countries I mean, you know yeah i would definitely say there is applying trust in government in most countries like there's different kinds of people but like the in most countries like if you're told your entire life that you know the government is trustworthy then you're just gonna believe it when you grow up like why wouldn't you you're indoctrinated into that way of thought yeah unless they've screwed you over heavily and and then that's when you start questioning things or you know maybe you just start questioning things anyways it depends on who you are but like yeah, a lot of people get indoctrinated into ways of thought, and that's something I don't enjoy. Like, I don't, I don't like people that are closed-minded or talking to people that are closed-minded because it's like, it's like talking to a brick wall. There's like nothing to learn. They're just gonna that's, keep saying the same thing over. And that's over the again. real virus, man. Is <laughs> closed-mindedness. That's the real virus. Uh, yeah. I've been recently 
doing, I don't know if I'd call it research, but I've, I've been allocating a lot of my time into watching YouTube videos on uh, philosophers who really break down specific ideas. And, and they, they talk about indoctrination a lot. And many of these philosophers are they actually refer to indoctrination towards, you know, worldviews or way, ways of thinking to young children. They refer to that as child abuse. Because it, it doesn't allow the child to, I mean, a child's going to believe anything you tell it, right? He or she is not going to be able to abstractly logic their way through a specific situation at a young age. And, and when you really ingrain that idea at such a young age, it, it just tends to propagate itself through the rest of their lives, unless they wake up, right? They, I think most people can, like, what do you think, Carlos? Do you think... Uh, do you think people who are closed-minded, do you think everybody has the potential to, to one day be open-minded and, and see things in a different light? Or do you think that there may be some other mechanisms at work, like genetically, or what, what do you think on that? Um, this is kind of a complicated question. Like, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but from oh, obviously. people that I've talked to, there are a lot of people that will never change their minds on a topic like it doesn't matter what you do to them they're just set in their ways and i think there is an evolutionary reason for that like you get to the point where you are because your parents managed to survive so why not just do what your parents did but like i think there's also an a, a, another good method for survival is adapting to situations so like having human beings being adapt adaptable and being able to just analyze a situation and figure out what the best method for you is, is also like a way of like, you know, surviving. So like the idea of indoctrination definitely feels like, you know, people are different. I actually think that some people who are indoctrinated into a belief probably can't be changed out of that belief. It's just that the way that, you know, they work, that's just the way that they view the world. So let me ask I do you this. think okay. some people can change though. Like it's not like everybody's the same. Like there are I, de- definitely people who have been stuck in their ways that are capable of changing their minds. It's just not everybody can in my view. I think you're hundred percent right in that. There are certainly people who can change their minds, and it happens all the time, right? I want to get your your idea on this. Do you think that not being able to change your mind on a particular topic, do you think that that has any correlation with the IQ of the, the, the person in under discussion? Do you think that people of lower IQs tend to be more closed-minded and people of higher IQs tend to be more open-minded? Or do you think that has any effect on, on that? that's also a complicated question uh just because like iq is not like a very good necessary measure of it like it is a decent like you know you can get like a certain like how like i don't even remember how iq tests work it's like a bunch of puzzles or like it's just knowing a a bunch of information it's it's a series of, of puzzles there's also like fill in what number comes next in this particular series but there's also linguistic questions and 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 logic questions so yeah i think i think that iq reasonably tests 
how good you are at, at thinking rationally and logically. Would you disagree or agree? I'm not going to say that IQ the is the only, that. I'm not going to say IQ is the only measure of intelligence. That's not cute. That's not true. There are many different types of sure. intelligence, I think. I mean, and, if you uh, want to think about like, if you want to just take it, like, instead of IQ, you just say that people who are more open-minded think more rationally. I can definitely get behind a statement like that because like people who think rationally will take your arguments and they will, you know, take them into account and then come up with a new like conclusion from your arguments to them. Somebody who doesn't think rationally is going to take your arguments and be like, but I believe this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, I wonder, know, what's I wonder, the point? I wonder if, um, uh, I won't say that this is my opinion, but uh, this is a thought that came to mind. I wonder if it, well, you know, I think that maybe to a certain extent, I do think this, that I think a lot of people that have had uh, somebody try to change their mind on a certain thing, if, if it is rational, I think there's an element of whether or not that person wants to change their mind. Uh, and, in, and if that were the case, then I don't necessarily think that it would have to do with your IQ because you could just be a super intelligent person and then just decide, you know, subconsciously or consciously that, nah, I'm right on this. I'm mm -hmm. just not going to uh, change my mind on it. Sure. I think that but, definitely applies from the subconscious uh, statement that you made. But uh, mm -hmm. my, my thought is that think, if someone's thinking consciously about it, they're going to take the information presented and the evidence presented to formulate their viewpoint, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Like, I think somebody who, like, thinks rationally, like, regardless of how much you believe something, if you're thinking rationally, like, you'll still listen to the other arguments. And if you're so sure of your argument that you have so many thoughts backing you up on why you believe something, then, like, the arguments, you know, won't phase you. I mm -hmm. guess you could say. Yeah, I but think, like, I think blindly, blindly believing something is what I see more as indoctrination, like just I believing see. something because you were told that is how it is. I see. Mm -hmm. But whether or not that means you're low IQ, I don't think so necessarily. Like, I'm not going to say that people that believe things that their parents told them are low IQ. Like, I don't think that's true at all. But I do think that being adverse to like, like, I think if you're you know, rational enough, you'll realize that it makes sense to listen to other, you know, what's the word, other information on like, what you believe, like mm -hmm. it makes sense for a rational person to do that. And, and one thing I'd like to add on this, this is kind of playing off what Josh said. Um, I think one of the one of the things that makes being open-minded more difficult i'll say is the fact that we are human and that we have emotion and sometimes people can get emotionally invested in particular ideas and if you're having a debate with someone or an argument about a particular idea that you're emotionally invested into that almost in some cases turns off your li your listening and analyzing mechanism in your brain because all you're thinking about is the next thing that you're gonna say right um so that emotional aspect really makes it harder to to see where someone else is coming from and and 
put yourself in their shoes. It's something that's very, very hard to do as human beings. Um, so I, I think that that could definitely play a role in, in making it more difficult to be open-minded. You know, if we were all yeah. robots, we would likely come to very similar um, ideas about the world and, and likely come to very similar destinations logically. Sure. That may not be the best thing, though. I don't think if everybody was a robot. Because, like, I like that people are different because you get different ideas, even if they're bad ideas. Like, it's just you get all of the ideas. Well, not all of them, mm -hmm. but like you get a wider variety of ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and like, and, and, I do on. think, I was gonna say like, I do think that going to other countries can make a person like more open-minded. Cause like, let's say you're indoctrinated into like a system and you live in one place your entire life and this is just how life is. Like, that's just how it is. If you go to like another place and like you see like how they live their life and how it's like working for them, like mm -hmm. it can actually open up your mind like about how there are different ways to just live life and how people are different and the same like at the same time like people are different but they're not that different mm -hmm. and i really think that the, the the breadth and the spread of all of the different uh destinations that that people can come to when analyzing and thinking about a project uh, problem I think that within that breadth and, and the new ideas that propagate off of the old ideas, even if that old idea wasn't necessarily 100% rational, the new idea that, that comes off that, uh, I, think, I think within this whole system of thinking is, is really where the, uh, the essence of being creative comes. Like, I, I wouldn't necessarily... Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily, if we were all robots and we came to the same conclusions and the same destinations of thoughts, I really don't think that the world would be a, a great place to live in because I think so much of what makes the world a good place to live in is stemming from the, uh, the, the, the creative nature of tuning into yeah. the universe through some antenna or whatever you want to call it, right? You know? Sure. The, uh, I mean... It's hard to Creative define aspect. creativity because like I feel like you're trying to make a point where like creativity can't stem from like pure logic which maybe could be I don't know true. if I'm necessarily making that point but I mean you're saying that robots all come to the same conclusion right maybe but I would mm -hmm. argue that that's not necessarily true because the way that a robot works is like if it's a robot with the same like like that was built in the same way and has the same objective then yes it'll come to the same conclusion but like mm -hmm. when you think about like statistics and like algorithms and stuff like that like you're looking for different data points so like one robot could look at like the world and like a preserving human race as long as possible and then another robot's mm -hmm. coming in thinking only about the short term and mm -hmm. then they're going to come to very different conclusions about interesting the correct way to live is and like once you put like the universe's data into like a robot you still need to determine like what is the correct like objective you know mm -hmm. like what is the robot actually looking for like we don't know that's the thing mm -hmm. yeah how do we program a robot to right. yeah that's no, just you, sounds you, like being in the back at square one yeah like, you may have a point even, there 
we don't even know the right questions to ask. Like, what are we trying to maximize here? Because that's what a robot mm -hmm. will do. It will maximize. It's not going to like, we can't just tell the robot, like, how do we make the world a better place? The robot's not going to be like, all right, well, we do all this. No, you yeah, have to there tell needs to be specific objectives. And, you, and you think specific. that, and you think that the different uh, destinations that an entity can reach could could stem from the objective of that particular entity or of that robot. That's that's yeah. an interesting idea, and I think that that's at play in humans as well. Uh, humans definitely have different objectives, and that exactly. can lead to different ways of thinking. But I don't know if that. I don't know if that uh, makes up for all of, of human creativity, you know? I'm not 100% sure. No, I sure. agree. I, I wouldn't say that, I'm not saying that like logic makes up for human creativity. What I'm saying is like, you shouldn't discount logic when it comes to creativity because like a lot of solutions that you think are creative were thought about in like a logical way. Like obviously, you know, a piece of like art, like the Mona Lisa is not going to be necessarily logical, but like mm -hmm. there are logical components to the piece mm -hmm. that people have found, you know? Yeah, and I, I definitely think, I don't, I don't necessarily think that creativity can't come from logic, but I, I definitely I mean, don't think that, but I, I just, I just, I just have, I the, I have the intuition. I have the intuition, I'll say that a world of humans will likely be more creative than a world of robots. That's that's sure. my intuition, but I'm not no, sure. I agree with you there. I like I don't know where creativity comes from. I'm gonna be honest. Like yeah, it's just my question, thing. Uh, uh, not me, but I was gonna ask. So with the uh, we were uh, you guys are talking about can creativity come from logic? It seems like there's like this narrative that like it doesn't. So does that mean that creativity is completely irrational? No, I think I think make to me. No, I, I don't think that we're saying that creativity can't come from logic. I think I think it right. certainly can. Well, I, we were we were towing the line, if you will, oh. with, oh, with if if we're idea. if we're and assuming that, idea. Yeah, if we're if we're assuming that, yeah. That creativity is irrational. Well, creativity doesn't have an objective, or does it? Huh. I don't know. Another good question. That's a good. Like, what is what is the what is the purpose of creativity yeah, I, I think creativity can have an objective because, because check this out sometimes say say your objective is solving a particular problem you can certainly be creative in the way that you solve the problem mm -hmm. sure but when you're solving a problem like you want to like honestly like the way i think about it is like when you're solving a problem you want to like solve the problem the best way possible does it make more sense to solve a problem creatively or does it make more sense to solve the problem logically well or, what, if you know, what if the creative solution what if the creative solution is the best known solution right well then the logical solution eventually comes to the creative solution and then it maximizes the creative solution so like the thing about creativity is like it's like you're thinking differently it's like everybody's doing something a certain way and you've decided you're going to do it differently mm -hmm. well and I, it may actually be better that you're doing it differently yeah but I, i'm only thinking about creativity in terms of solving problems like there's creativity in like art and music and like mm -hmm. making pieces no, and that's yeah, not really solving a problem no uh, yeah. that 
I would uh I would uh disagree with on on as far as art it not solving a problem because all art all art is is the um uh delivery of an idea which is a problem how do I get this idea to other people that's all that's all any piece of art that's all it is is and I have an idea in my head and now I want to share it with other people that's a problem so we do that through art in that regard then everything every piece of creativity wouldn't would be solving, be solving a problem yeah. okay and in yeah, that regard that. in that regard then um then i wonder if uh if you i, I think i could make the argument that um uh creativity could be a hundred percent or or could be by and large uh logical because if you're trying if the idea is to solve this problem i have this idea i have to share it with other people we do that in um we do that in logical ways and so take filmmaking uh that's a creative uh, avenue that i use we have a lot of rules in like composition there's a lot of rules in filmmaking that uh that are set up and we and filmmakers have decided that you frame a shot this way, you do this, you light this way. These are the best ways to get this type of idea. And most of us agree with that. Uh, so there's a lot okay. of rules. And then the most creative films, creative films are the ones that break those rules. And so then you think, well, they're going, against, yeah, they're going against the rationale. But in context, it's the breaking of the rules that conveys an idea most efficiently. You right. see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And that's I cool, think, honestly. I think creativity can come from logic. And this poses, I think it can, but I, I'm not sold on the idea that it solely comes from logic because I, I, I guess, I guess, I guess what I'm thinking. Yeah. I think, I think what I'm thinking about is imagine when people get inspired to just paint something, right? I'm not necessarily sure that they're viewing it in the manner where they have a particular well i guess i guess the the inspiration would be inducing this idea into their heads that they need to get on the in that regard they just become a middleman yeah yeah but let me let me say this i think because hmm. now what's coming to mind is like how humans when, when you like record in a recording studio like music right mm -hmm. um it's commonly referred that, or it's thought of that humans make mistakes when they're recording. And if it's actually the human playing guitar, rather than you, you auto tune everything, you know, the mistakes are what make this song beautiful, you know, and it gives it that human touch, right? Mm -hmm. Which. It's one way of looking at it. I, I don't, it, that doesn't necessarily speak to, to being creative. It, it speaks more to being human and how human because the logical thing to do would be to not make the mistake right sure right but now i'm kind of getting on the art, idea of beauty sure <laughs> beauty beauty and art art is art and beauty are hard to define yeah that's I, maybe a beautiful thing about it right i was just about to say i think that's why they exist like yeah. it's not like something 
that you can just logically just be like, this is what it is. And I think, mm -hmm. I don't know, there's something great about that. I don't know what it is, honestly. Yeah. I just, I like the idea of that. Yeah, you know what I'm really going to be, what's going to be unsettling to me is if, if artificial intelligence one day gets better at art and music and all of these things that, that make us so innately human and, and better than robots, like obviously we cannot, the, the computational speed of our, our brains is, is nothing compared to a computer, right? So we don't, we don't win there, but we do have this, this idea of, of creativity and this idea to be able to express beauty and for someone else to receive that beauty and, and, uh, really, really get a feeling from just looking at that thing, right? Or hearing that piece of music. I'm gonna be pretty, pretty upset if one day AI gets better at art than humans. Yeah, which is what I we're mean, kind of discussing. I guess it's subjective, possible. right? Like it's, it's not an objective right. thing, but still, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I think we're overvaluing like, what you know humans should be like we're expecting humans like we're kind of like seeing ourselves as like these ultimate like beings of like ah, oh, a robot will never be as creative as me. for sure for sure like you know what's wrong with a robot being capable of being creative like i don't see any issue in that nothing's wrong with it and it's inevitable it'll happen i i think <laughs> I guess I guess this is coming back to the idea that robots can be creative, but I think I think when you induce uh, artificial intelligence into the mix and the evolution of artificial intelligence and what it may be in fifty or hundred years, I think it's inevitable for for robots to be creative, and I think even better at potentially creating art or creating music than humans. But it just gives this it gives this perspective where like if robots are better than everything at you, right. It's like, I don't know. What's it's it's an unsettling, it's an unsettling feeling to have, I guess, sure. whether, whether it's inevitable or not. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the question then becomes like, if robots are better at everything, what's the point of humans doing anything? You know? Yeah. I was just, I was going to say that exact same <laughs> thing, but, like. but then I, I caught myself because I mean, I don't think there's a point to any of this existence, right? Like that, that's what I, mean, I think. I, I, th I think that how you do it. Yeah. I, th I think the only meaning to the existence is meaning that you would assign to the existence. Right. So, so I was going to say, what's the point of humans? Well, what's the point of, of robots? What's the point of, even if robots are better than us, what's the point of it? You know, that that's kind of the thought that came, but I do see where you're coming sure. from. Yeah, I had a thought and now I've lost it. Uh, if you were a robot, you wouldn't have lost it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to have to look into how to get robots to do this podcast now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. All right. Now I remember what I wanted to say. Okay. So, like, What's up? Uh, in terms of like art and stuff, we were saying like, well, Josh is saying art has an objective, mm -hmm. which is to like communicate an idea to other people. But I mean, people see art differently. Like, I think it's hard to define art and I don't know if art really does have an objective in my opinion. So like, 
if robots were to exist, currently robots work entirely on logic and maximizing stuff. So like if there isn't an objective to art, then robots can't actually be better than us at art because right. they won't know what to do. Like the robots won't know like what direction to go and how do they maximize art, you know, like what? Yeah, if there's no objective. But it, yeah, if there's an objective like getting an idea across or getting an idea across in a beautiful way, there's also like how do you maximize a beautiful way of getting this idea right. across. Because, and, and I think what's at play there is that beauty is subjective, right? Yeah, it is subjective. So how could you That's maximize you beauty if it's subjective? You can't. That's the idea. You can maximize it for a person, but mm -hmm. uh, for the most so, people. So um, uh, how can you maximize beauty? There is an idea. Uh, uh, so the golden ratio which is uh we use in photography and filmmaking uh, a very simplified version of that is just the rule of thirds which you just draw a grid and it tells you where you should line up your subject the golden ratio is an actual ratio that scientifically is associated with beauty so there is this idea that i'm not saying that i agree with it but there is an idea that you actually can break down beauty into science well, maybe maybe sure. beauty to humans, but not beauty to squirrels, right? Sure. But like, sure. So, so yeah, by that, think about this also. Like, think about like the most ugly possible ratio that you can think of doing. Is there not a beauty to that? Like, just making something as ugly as possible. Mm -hmm. That's that's not that's not a thought that came to my mind that there would be a. Uh, uh, I don't know, ugly ratio. Ugly ratio, right? I don't really know about the golden ratio. <laughs> that would be interesting. That'd be, I, I, I might look into that. I'm, and again, I wasn't saying that I agree with the, mm. that beauty could Well, be I think, I think with that, no, I'm not saying I think what that may be speaking to is if you take most of human beings <clears> and you were to ask them what's beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. They would likely choose pictures that, that follow this golden rule, right? Right. I think uh, I think that could be scientifically proven, but that also speaks to well, well, humans have evolved differently from other beings, and I'm not saying that squirrels have the capacity to to find beauty. I, I don't know if they do, but um, what what this kind of speaks to is, you know, how people evolved to see beauty, and it, it still comes back to subjectiveness. I think, even if most people. Um, think it's more beautiful to follow this this rule of thirds provided that you find one person that doesn't think that way which i'm mm -hmm. sure you can find uh i don't necessarily think it's it can be viewed in an objective manner you know right well so and then that's that was kind of the point that i was making um earlier when i was uh talking about it having an objective uh or like even art having an objective I, 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 not everybody may agree with this, but my thought is, I believe that when you, when you break those rules that are set up, it's only the context that you can, uh, that makes it work. It's the context of the rule that makes breaking the rule beautiful. You know what I mean? Like that makes yeah. breaking, the, just breaking the rule any meaning. Yeah, but I think that as long as I can find one person, regardless of 
of the context, as long as I can find one person that thinks the, the rule broken picture is more beautiful than the rule following picture, then it's still subjective. Right. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I guess. Right, yeah, my brain is kind of starting to hurt, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't think we'd get into it. it's such a philosophical in this this hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just how complicated it is. Like beauty yeah. and art, art it's impossible to define for me at least. I yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could try, but yeah. I mean, like I think it's cool to make attempts, but at the end of the day, even when I make an attempt to understand something as abstract as that. I just view it as such. It was an attempt and hope and honestly, like all I'm hoping to get out of it is more creativity, but I've never been of the mindset that I'll ever go into understanding what creativity is or what yeah. abstract. How do you measure that? Are. How are you more creative? <laughs> how have you Wait, become what? more creative? I, I, like, I how do you measure it? Oh, right. And that's, yeah, I guess, we don't yeah. know how to measure it. Well, I, yeah, for me, if I, well, I think you can measure it personally. I don't think you could measure it objectively, but I think you yeah. could measure it uh, uh, personally. So like for me, I feel like I'm more creative when I'm not creating the same thing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? When I, when I yeah. do something that has a pattern that I haven't used before. You know? Right. So like, think about this, like think about if every picture in the world was performed using the golden ratio. Right. And then suddenly there's this one picture that doesn't use the golden ratio and everybody's like, wow, that's so creative. You're right. so different. Like yeah. there is a beauty to being different for some reason. Yeah. Like, I don't know why that is. It's just interesting. Um, what is that? Uh, ah. Uh. It's something, it's something you typically learn in uh, utility. It's uh, the, the second and third byte of the most- uh, The marginal group. utility. Yeah, marginal utility, it, that could apply. I, I, I think we see that in culture a lot. I think that- um, Yeah, once we get bored. Same, yeah, once we've listened to the same music for a decade, it's time to switch it up. Yeah, we just get bored of the same thing over and over yeah. again. I think I find it. I find it very quirky. interesting. I find it very interesting how this uh, conversation has spiraled in the manner that it has spiraled in, because I think all this really stemmed from uh, the idea of being in different cultures and and living in different countries and going to different countries, and because what we're really talking about is different ways to think about something, you know. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that the best way to be exposed to different ways of thoughts it's interesting because we have the internet now so you can technically just go on youtube and get different ways of thinking which is really a great thing um but if i think if you really want to be exposed and just thrown into a different way of, of thinking i think you know it could definitely be advantageous just go spend some time in another country and mm -hmm. not one that is similar to the country you're already in right like i think yeah. you know going from like US to like Thailand or, or US to, I don't know, Kenya or something. I think, I think that could be, you'll really start to see those, those different ways of thinking. And, uh, you know, 
what, what I like to do, when I spent five months in, in China, I, I think one of the greatest benefits are, because you're, you're just exposed to so many different ways of, of thinking and so many different nuances of the culture. What it allows you to do is you get to, you get to think about each individual uh, topic that you're exposed to. And you get to say like, huh, like, that's an interesting way of uh, going about that. I, I kind of like that. Let me take that from my toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe you come across yeah. the next thing and you're like, well, I, I don't agree with that at all. That's, I, I really like my way of doing this better. And you get to pick and choose what you like from that culture and you get to adopt it into your own toolbox of your own cultural tool, toolbox, if you will. So I think, I think the more places that you do go visit and you can, you can pick up these little tools along the way, the more well-rounded, open-minded and uh, multicultural you'll be, you know? Mm. Yeah. Do you agree, agree. Carlos? If you I mean, have I'd... the opportunity, I mean, I do agree. If you have the opportunity to go to a country with a vastly different culture, I would definitely take that opportunity to learn. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much information out there, but like, you can't truly understand how something works just by like reading about it like to truly experience a culture you have to go to that culture and like live in that culture and like so a lot of like places have like touristy places that are just like you know come here and see this and like that's a part of understanding the culture but like for a lot of people that live there like they never visit the touristy places that's not like their life mm-hmm. like if you're going to go to another country you might as well see like how the people there like actually live. Don't just visit the touristy places. Mm-hmm. For sure. That I I can relate to that. Uh, whenever I go to Italy, I have family that lives over there and I'll, I'll bring friends to Italy sometimes. And every time I bring them, it's like, we gotta go see the, the Colosseum, gotta go see, you know, the Pantheon, this, that, and the other, right? And uh, every time we do that, I'm like, oh, this again, you know? Like I, <laughs> I, I really uh, enjoy the you know going out to a, a a bar at night with some friends and seeing how do they you know have fun on a saturday night or mm-hmm. you know going to some of the little vacation spots that my family actually goes to within the country when they go on vacation you know i think you can really get a, a better perspective on how the people live uh when yeah. when doing that and same goes for even i mean i guess when you go to a new place for the first time you got to go do the touristy shit right like, I guess you, it's, yeah. it's part of the experience, but I think you shouldn't, you sh- definitely shouldn't only do that, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, that's what I was saying. I'm not against during the touristy stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I do that stuff when I go to a new country. You know, it's cool to see these crazy structures and stuff like that. But, like, I'm just saying you should also try and experience the culture. For sure. The yeah. culture is not in the touristy place. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and a quick way to understand, uh, well, not understand, but a quick way to get a clue into the culture is ask what the uh, people there think of all the touristy spots and how it fits into context. Interesting. Yeah. That sounds like it's it. a good if question. You can speak the language, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nah. I mean, just being in a place where you don't speak the language is interesting. Yeah. I was, I meant to ask, do you speak, you speak a couple of the languages, don't you, Carlos? Uh, I speak English. My Portuguese is decent. I wouldn't say I'm fluent. Uh, I speak French decent. 
like about the same as my Portuguese, and then I can understand Spanish to a decent amount. That's about it. That's so sick. I'm trying to I'm trying to pick Spanish back up. Okay. There, there was a man. I I and whenever I get into talking about language, like I just I just never understood um, how somebody could be bilingual. And the closest I got to like, I wasn't close, but the closest I got uh, to being bilingual was when I worked at a restaurant. And a lot of the cooks uh, spoke Spanish and a couple of the older busters that I worked with did. And one of them was really cool about like helping me learn the language. And I'll never forget like this one moment. It was something really simple. Uh, His name was George. He just told me to go, um, he told me to go get a broom. And I start walking away to get this broom. And I start realizing, I'm like, wait, he said that in Spanish. And I didn't translate that into English in my head. I just knew what he said. And I went and, yeah. and I did it. And I was like, you're telling me that it's like that, like, for every sentence when you're bilingual? I'm like, that's insane. I wish I could have yeah. that like, across the board. It's like, it's like English. It's like that's insane. English, the way that you see English, you don't have any thought about what they say. Right. You're just like, oh, that's, that's what it means. You know, right. you don't translate it. Your brain mm-hmm. just understands it. Yeah. Well, once you're bilingual, in the beginning, you are translating yeah. it in your own head to, to understand. But yeah, I, that, was, that was the sliver <laughs> for, I guess, for like two seconds, I was bilingual. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think, I don't know. I'm not bilingual, sadly. Okay. I wish I was that fluent. Like, yeah. I wish, but, like, my parents had, like, just talked to me in their language, like, okay. growing up, like, completely. Because, like, the way that my parents communicate is in English, because, like, they're from different countries. My dad's oh. Portuguese, my mom's Vietnamese, but they communicate through English, and that's why English is my best language. That's why it doesn't sound like I have an accent when I speak English, because I've been speaking English my entire life. Interesting. Yeah, but yeah. even just understanding other uh, other languages, even if you're not fully bilingual, it's just such a cool skill. I think it's really cool. I wish I was bilingual. It would be great. Yeah. Yeah, I think from a practical standpoint, though, may, maybe this is the case for some people, but I guess I'm speaking for myself here. I don't see myself becoming fluent in another language unless I'm living in a in a place where I need to use it, you know? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I've actually heard it's really easy to learn a language once you start living in a country that only speaks that language. Like you right, just, bet. like humans are able to pick up languages pretty quickly, apparently. Mm-hmm. So like, if I ever spend like maybe six months to a year in, in Portugal, maybe I'd be able to like fluently start speaking the language. I'm certain. Something yeah, I mean, if I were to go spend six months in Spain or Mexico, I'd definitely be pretty fluent. Yeah, I mean, your Spanish will definitely improve. That's for sure. For sure. sure. All right, guys. uh, I think this was a very interesting podcast, and I think it took some very interesting turns along the way. Yeah, that that went all over the place. But you know what's interesting? Even with conversations, because I I like how you pointed out how we got from point A to point B. You can't Mm -hmm. always do that, but a lot of times conversations do there is a there is a logical flow from <laughs> yeah kind of yeah yeah sometimes sometimes i don't know man uh my girlfriend vanessa like we'll be talking about something then we'll be quiet for like maybe five seconds and sometimes i'll pull something out of the farthest uh stretches of the universe <laughs> yeah. out of my head and she's like why did you even think of that <laughs> you know 
I don't know. I mean, ideas are spontaneous, dude. You can't yeah. come up with new ideas without like it being spontaneous, you know? Yeah. I don't well, know. That's just how sure. it is. Yeah, that's that's the whole uh, that's the whole point of this podcast. Uh, I was uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Definitely loved having you on, Carlos. Uh, this definitely will not be the last time. I hope. I hope we can uh, we can all do this again. No, uh, no say. I enjoyed talking to you guys about random stuff. I always enjoy talking about random stuff. It just absolutely. kind of bothers. Yeah, dude. That's uh, yeah. Let's, that's let's definitely do this again in the future. Yeah, I'm done. All right, guys, peace. All right, take care. Peace out.